time for us to hear scripture, and I get to call before you uh, someone who's read scripture to us before, someone who is uh, continuing to excel, in my opinion, in the teaching profession. Word has it, the students that are under his care not only are learning, but love to learn, and I think that's the mark of a great teacher. Um, I'm blessed to call him my brother in Christ. Can you please welcome Dave Galley as he's going to read to us from the Gospel of Mark. Welcome. Last couple times I read from the Bible, which is hard to read, small print, print stuff out this morning, pretty pleased with myself. Please turn in your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 10, 32 through 45, that's page 707 in your pew Bibles. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what, he, what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You do not know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those who, for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with John, James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whomever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whomever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Can you take a note today? No. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. In the aftermath of the resurrection, everything changes, or at least it should. If Jesus is making all things new, that includes us. And in order to be transformed into who we are becoming in Christ, as I mentioned last week on Easter, we have to do more than believe in resurrection. We have to practice resurrection, living as the resurrected body of Christ. For the remainder of our time in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to go back to sections that we were not able to cover before Holy Week. And I think that as we encounter the words of, and deeds of Jesus in light of the cross and the empty tomb, we're going to experience these passages differently. Through them, I'm hoping we're going to learn how to follow Jesus, how to practice resurrection. And as you heard Dave read, our journey back begins by considering the human pursuit of greatness, 
Jesus and his followers, were told, are headed up to Jerusalem. More specifically, if you were paying attention, Mark tells us they were headed up to Jerusalem. And this is true in a number, in a number of ways. They were in the Jordan Valley of the Jordan River right about now when they're traveling. And if you know anything about the topography of the land, that's about 1,000 feet below sea level. They're headed to the city of Jerusalem, which is 2,500 approximately feet above sea level. So they are literally going up to Jerusalem. But this is more significant, this idea of up to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is the relevant city by all who are waiting for the Messiah, because that's the seat of authority. Jerusalem is the capital of the nation of Israel. The temple is located in Jerusalem, hence it's the epicenter of worship. So if you're going to rise to power, if you were going to take the crown and elevate yourself to the throne as the heir, as the son of David, the anointed one, the Messiah, you went up to Jerusalem. Mark goes on to tell us that Jesus was leading the way, like someone advancing with a purpose. Jesus is walking out ahead of his disciples, leading them. Now, to give you some context for this journey, right before this little road trip, Jesus has completely turned everyone's expectations upside down when he declares, Lee preached on this a couple of weeks ago, when Jesus declares, you know, being rich and famous actually makes it harder to be a part of my father's kingdom. Don't kid yourself. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Now, if this is Jesus' idea of a rally speech, it isn't exactly motivating the troops, because Mark tells us that the atmosphere of this little walk in the wilderness is one of astonishment and fear. Now, you might think that Jesus, sensing this, might pause to give a little shot in the arm, I don't know, an attaboy, a group hug, But instead, in the midst of this astonishment and fear, Jesus, we're told, pulls the 12 aside and for the third time predicts his suffering and death. He's brought up this unpopular subject on two other occasions, but this time he provides even more details than before. This time he mentions being delivered over to someone, inferring his betrayal by Judas. He further predicts being handed over to the Gentiles, the Romans. He talks about being mocked, spit upon, flogged, and killed by them. And perhaps, as always, most amazing and striking of all of Jesus' predictions is his foretelling of how he would rise again in three days. We've just, it's interesting to hear that read by Dave, to read that together, just as this is what we were just in last week. We're, we're, we just walked through remembering how all of these predictions made by Jesus happened exactly as he said they would. And I hope, as I mentioned earlier, we're still reflecting kind of sitting in the implications of the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus for our lives. Hopefully, we still are, because again, if you were paying attention, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, don't seem to give it a second thought. James and John, the sons of thunder, as they were nicknamed by Jesus, live up to their billing. As Jesus utters this shocking word to his disciples, this detailed graphic and future depiction of his suffering and death, they storm right past these comments and say, hey, uh, Jesus, we're calling in a favor. When you're glorified, we want to reserve the best seats in the house. So give us the VIP seats next to you, okay? By the way, I love, if you're not familiar with this, how Matthew in his version of this story tries to pin it all on James and John's mom. Hey, no offense, Jesus, my mom just wanted to know. My mom was just asking, that's all. I'm just asking. Now, keep in mind, James and John are asking this after the third time. Jesus has told them where this road to Jerusalem leads, where following him really takes them. 
The first time Jesus predicted his death, Peter, you remember this, made himself the de facto leader of the bunch and pulled Jesus aside to tell him to change his message. Peter, who just moments earlier confessed the gold star revelation, you are the Messiah, starts rewriting the gospel. Jesus, what kind of campaign promise is that? You're the Messiah, sure, but Messiahs don't get taken down by the bad guys. They take out the bad guys. To which Jesus responds, among other things, by saying, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the good news will save it. And you'll remember that the disciples to a man in response say, seriously? The second time when Jesus predicts his death, his disciples as a group still don't understand how this could all possibly make sense. But they're afraid to ask Jesus to clarify, so they do the next best thing to asking a question. They start an argument with each other over who's the greatest. (laughs) Jesus knows they're afraid to ask, and as he breaks up their little prize fight, he looks at them and says, whoever wants to be first must be last. To which the open-mouthed disciples once again reply, seriously? And now for the third time, Jesus is telling them he's willingly going up to Jerusalem to face his own betrayal, abandonment, torture, and death. And all James and John have to say is, yeah, well, that's cool. Thanks, Jesus, for that. But we get your car, right? And in response, this time it's Jesus who turns and says, seriously? It's an honest request by James and John, isn't it? I mean, this is what we'd all ask, wouldn't we? don't we? I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but isn't this what most of our conversations with Jesus are like also? Isn't this basically the content, the same content of most of our prayers? Hey, Jesus, yeah, thank you for the cross and all that. Yeah, thanks. But do you mind doing something about my neighbor? He's always interrupting me and talking over me and saying stuff that makes no sense. It's a real pain having to be in relationship with him. Can't you set me up with more kingdom-minded people, more people like you? Jesus, your grace is so amazing and it's awesome that I don't have to worry about dying anymore thanks to you, but could you please get me out of this job, this project, this assignment, this thing I have to do right now? It's so boring. It's such a waste of my time not using my gifts. It's killing me. No offense attended, Lord. Uh, But can't you provide something more impressive or noteworthy, something that really makes a difference for your kingdom, at least in the eyes of the people who are watching me? Sound familiar? Variation? Jesus' response to James and John and to us indicates how off the mark we, like them, often are. You don't know what you're asking. To call this an understatement is putting it lightly. In Mark's gospel, we've seen it again and again and again, and it doesn't get any better. The disciples do not come off looking like smart and holy people. More often than not, they come across as a bunch of well-meaning but ultimately clueless works in progress. In other words, sinners being slowly and patiently transformed into saints. And that's good news. That's good news for us because we are a lot like them. We are a lot like James and John. We have been given, think about it, we have been given the mercy of Christ's sacrifice. We celebrated the victory of his resurrection. We've been entrusted with the keys to the kingdom the authority and power of God's word and spirit, and yet the size and scope for most of us of our vision for this world, the focus and intensity of our conversation with Jesus, of our prayers, often remains sorely 
and embarrassingly limited and frankly, self-centered. Seriously, what are our expectations? What are our prayers for this world, for our lives? Nonetheless, Jesus meets us where we are. We talk about grace and this is it. Jesus works with us. He starts with us where we are. He doesn't cast us aside or throw us out of his presence. Jesus turns to James and John and asks them if they could drink from his cup and be baptized with him. Now, as we all know, Jesus isn't referring to a literal cup with water or wine. He's talking about the cup that he prays about in the Garden of Gethsemane. The cup that he first asks his father, our father, to take away from him and then later willingly consumes by way of the cross. It's a metaphorical cup. It's the metaphorical cup filled with suffering. The suffering of the world due to the prevalence of sin. The baptism Jesus is referring to is his identification with the sufferings of humanity. But more than this, and we understand this on the other side of Calvary better, Jesus is talking about identifying with the sufferings of humanity by enduring the ultimate consequence of human sin, which is death. The Apostle Paul makes this same association as he writes his letters, his letter to the churches in Rome, when he says to be baptized with Jesus is to die with Jesus, to die to oneself, to die to the ways of the world. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with my baptism? Jesus is asking James and John, you and me, if we want to follow him, are we really able to practice resurrection? Are we willing to let go of how we're used to seeing ourselves, of how we're used to seeing this world in order to see and experience ourselves and this world differently? Are we able to identify with, to empathize, to hurt for the suffering of of others so much that it causes us pain? It keeps us up at night, compelling us to do something. Are we willing to be betrayed, to be mocked, to put our life on the line in order to love the least of these, often the very ones who are nailing us to the cross. We ought not to answer questions like these too quickly. But if you paid attention, James and John don't miss a beat. Even though they really don't know what Jesus was talking about, remember, we understand better on the other side of things. Even though they don't understand what Jesus is talking about, they say, sure, no problem. Whatever it takes, we got this. Talk about unconscious incompetence. Then again, we all begin following Jesus this way. From this place, this mixture of confident enthusiasm and ignorant boldness. This is what we we used to call in the church being on fire for Jesus. And by the way, that's not the same thing as being baptized by fire with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. Enthusiasm is wonderful. Boldness is admirable. But following Jesus, going where he goes, doing what he does, practicing resurrection, isn't something we can do on our own. No matter how enthusiastic or bold we are. And if we try to do it in our own strength, in our own power and authority, we eventually fizzle out. We burn out. And I'm sad to say that there are many followers of Christ who have fallen by the wayside for this very reason. And this is why Jesus goes on to say to James and John, if you, were, if you have it open, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But he says, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. Notice what he says next. 
These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. In other words, we are not only saved by grace, we glorify God by grace. Jesus calls us to follow him, and while in following him, we share in his cup and participate in his baptism. These are not achievements we earn or reserve by our own merit. We are prepared for that to which God calls us. We practice resurrection by grace. The trajectory for most of us is the same. First, we begin by becoming aware of how incapable we are, of how wide and how great the gap is between Jesus and us. And then we are equipped. We are taught. We are empowered. We are given opportunities. And if you've taken any steps down these road, this road of following Jesus, and I hope at least all of you have taken a few steps, you know what comes next. We're equipped, we're taught, we're empowered, we're given opportunities, and then we fail. And in our failures, we die a thousand deaths only by God's grace to rise again. We learn how to practice resurrection and find ourselves eventually not so much following Christ as being in Christ. What Paul calls having the mind of Christ. We become, if you will, unconsciously competent, instinctively being with Jesus and acting out of a solid awareness and the regular exercise of his presence in our lives. Beloved, this is the grace of discipleship. But very few of us have tasted its fruit. And maybe the reason for that is, before we can truly live by grace, we have to reconcile our understanding of grace with our definition of greatness. If you were, again, listening closely, James and John's little conversation with Jesus brings up an old wound. As I mentioned earlier, the disciples had a history of having the who is greatest among us debate. And as they hear James and John talking with Jesus, the other 10 disciples are not happy. This is putting it mildly. Basically, they go ballistic with James and John. Who died and made you better than the rest of us? First, they both get a nickname, and now they get to drink from his cup and be baptized with him? Jesus, this is so unfair. What makes them so great? The brotherhood of the disciples is coming apart at the seams. But notice what Mark tells us Jesus does here. Real subtle. He called them together. And then Jesus proceeds to instruct them yet again on how things work in the kingdom of God. In particular, he teaches them about the pursuit of greatness. Now please notice, Jesus doesn't try to discourage his followers from going from good to great. This is because our desire to be our best is a noble and God-given one. The challenge, as we witness the repeated argument amongst the close fellowship of the disciples, the challenge is how we define greatness. What Jesus attempts to repeatedly teach them and us is that our definition of success, of significance, of greatness, is backwards. Listen to how Jesus tries to reframe what greatness looks like in his kingdom. He speaks of the Gentiles, a term which in scripture is used to describe anyone who is not a Jew. But literally translated here, Jesus is describing the nations, the world, as it's been established apart from in rebellion against God our Father. You see, greatness in a world without God is trying to be God by lording it over others. Leadership is exercised from the top down. It's hierarchical. Being number one means someone else has to be number two. 
and so on and so on. One's greatness, if you will, comes by way of another's life not being so great. Jesus speaks in terms of what we know, what, how we've all learned the world works. Greatness in a world that refuses to recognize the authority of its creator is about authority taken by force and maintained by seizing or demanding control over others. And like us, while the disciples think of greatness along the lines of Gentile kings and rulers who exercise their power through status and rank, Jesus declares, this is not how it works in the kingdom of God. Within the reign of our Father, there is a different sort of power ranking. One rooted not in status, but in service. According to Jesus, significance, success, greatness, comes through being a servant to others. Greatness derives not from fulfilling our own ambitions, but by being ambitious for our Father's purposes for his people and his creation. Greatness ought to be perceived not through the recognition we seek or get from others. Greatness ought to be perceived through the recognition we give to others, glorifying God's presence, his love and work in their life. This is challenging. This is a challenging lesson for the disciples to learn. And let's be honest, it's a challenging lesson for us to learn. Seeking this kind of greatness that Jesus describes is an absolute reversal of how we've come to perceive success, wealth, and power. Practicing resurrection in this way is the complete opposite of how we live, work, and breathe. All our natural-born lives, we've been born, we've been raised to pursue greatness by pursuing power and control, seizing the moment, taking the bulls by the horn and making something of ourselves, asserting our will over others, being able to call our own shots, getting ahead of the other guy, ending up on top. We build systems that count points. We look at our bank statements, at the stock market, at the cars in our driveways. We accumulate favors. We collect votes. We strive to get likes on Facebook or to amass fans on YouTube or followers on Twitter. We count up our points and check them against everybody else's numbers. And sometimes we come out ahead. Sometimes we come out in the middle. Sometimes we come out behind. Still, being ranked as the greatest in this system always eludes us. Why? Why? Because when we are captive to achieving power in this way, there is never enough. We're never smart enough. We're never pretty enough. We're never rich enough. We're never successful enough. We're never great enough. Being counted among the greats in a world fixated on points never adds up in our favor. Why? Because even though there is always someone keeping score, no one tallies the points the same way. The math in a broken world never adds up. And so we spend all of our time counting points, guarding them, trying to amass them, worrying about them, checking them, and we never actually get to enjoy anything. Jesus points to his own life, his own mission as reflection, as a reflection of what true greatness looks like. And this is the gospel. Here it is, that our creator, our God, our father, loves us so much that even when we can't let go of our own rankings and systems, he willingly comes into the world 
and becomes a willing victim of our game. He plays along, and along the way, he shows us what a dangerous game we are really playing, how exhausting it is, how crazy it makes us, how it drives lots of us to drink, or worse, how it corrupts our souls and makes us slaves to guilt and shame, how the whole quest for success to be great kills us and puts us in the grave. Jesus changes the rules of the game when he refuses to hold on to power, to reign as we often do, but instead empties himself of his own glory and taking the form of a servant, gave his life as a ransom for many, for you and me. And on the cross, as we remembered last week, and the reason why a cross, I, I pray, is in every sanctuary, every place of worship that follows Jesus, the reason why the cross is dead center is because on the cross, Jesus reveals the greatest gift, the greatest act, the greatest news of all, willing, innocent sacrifice in the name of love. He died rejected. He died abandoned. He died condemned. He died defeated. And yet he conquered death. Because the victory of Jesus' resurrection reveals that all those points we're counting, they don't matter. All those awards, those honors, those certificates of merit we're holding on to to validate ourselves, they only matter to us. They don't decide our worth to God. Jesus' resurrection not only vindicates his own greatness, it changes once and for all the very definition of what greatness is and how it is accomplished. Beloved, in other words, the cross isn't just a Jesus thing. The way of the cross is how we're all called to live. Dying to having to come in first, but instead serving others to the very last is the way for all who would follow Jesus. In other words, resurrection, beloved, is freedom. Freedom from trying to be great and the freedom instead of being free to live out of the greatness of our worth as evidenced by the love we have received in Christ. Practicing resurrection is therefore about the shaping of our character. With Jesus, our greatness rises not out of our own power and authority, but out of us yielding every day and choosing and being shaped by God's power and authority working in and through us. Pursuing greatness is about loving and serving others so as to help them see their greatness in the eyes of God and thereby share this freedom we have received in Christ. And yet sometimes, not just in the world but in the church, we stress out about wanting to be, wanting to do something great. But see, that's just it. Greatness in the kingdom of God isn't that hard. It doesn't require winning the lottery. It doesn't require having any spare time. It doesn't require waiting for a surplus of resources. Greatness in the kingdom is revealed in the smaller, seemingly insignificant moments wherein our character is built, where we choose to use what we have been given for the benefit of another to the glory of God. If you were with us last week, Sunday, you know that in my own family, we've been walking through some stuff. My grandfather passed a little over a week ago, and on Monday, I was privileged to do the service. And in the midst of walking through this, I have seen the greatness that Jesus is talking about. I've seen the contrast. The greatness of the kingdom 
is when you leave the Good Friday service and here your grandfather isn't doing well and you're heading to the hospital and a friend, a friend who's been out of town all week caring for her own father, I mean, literally, in the midst of his own crisis, health crisis, has just gotten back, is exhausted. But when they get the word because they're praying that you're going to the hospital, gets in the car and comes over. Comes over in that room and uses the gifts that she's been given to make sure that everybody has a chair. To get lotion so that we can massage grandpa's hands and his feet. Finds that cup of cold water with a swab so that water can be given to another person who's passing from this life to the next. Greatness is all of a sudden getting that call that he's gone home to the Lord and yet there's things to do, there's rooms to lock up and you call someone and you just ask someone else who's praying for you and say, can you just lock it up? We'll have to deal with it later. We, that we, our plan was to clean it all up but we're not gonna be able to and you call that person and that person calls a few friends, a few people who they're discipling and they come and they take the time to carefully and lovingly take everything down and pack it all away. It's a woman who has a dog. She gets a dog because she's lonely. She gets a dog because she wants a companion. And as she adopts this dog and she's enjoying the love and companionship of this dog, she all of a sudden realizes, she hears God speaking. She sees an opportunity. And rather than just train her dog to be around people as we train all of our dogs to do, she decides she's going to train our dog to be sensitive to care for those who are not feeling like themselves. And then a couple of times a week, on her own time with her own dog, she takes her to visit those people who are sick, to visit those people who are lonely, sitting in hospital beds or a nursing home, to visit my grandmother who's still in shock at the loss of her husband. And something as simple as a dog being able to get up on a bed and to being able to pet it and to have a picture taken with that dog smiling at you. You know, it's, it's people who come from the place that your grandparents have been living the nursing home, they're paid for what they do, but beyond their pay, beyond their job description, the people who are in the hospital that your grandfather's in, who've cared for him in the midst of his different appointments, who go out of their way to find out when is the service, and they get themselves there, and they're there at the service, the service that's honoring your grandfather. They're there because they want to help care for grandma. They're there because they want to love on us. All week long, these different things were happening. And all week long, I realized in the midst of preparing for this, the response that I either made when people made the invitation or the response I made when people just went ahead and did is I would say one of two things. I would go, that would be great. Or I would say, that was so great of you. And you know what? It was. It was great. It was great in the way that Jesus describes greatness in the kingdom. But this isn't just about me. This is just what's in my periphery. I want to challenge you. Where can we see this kind of greatness among us beyond the immediacy of something like this that happens to us? I know, for example, the story. I know of a doctor. There's a doctor I know. There's a doctor I know who years ago started his, his practice in what was a middle-class neighborhood. And over time, in this little, little space that's like a clinic, that neighborhood changed into a community filled with immigrants, a community filled with impoverished family members, with many living without steady work, and he didn't move. He didn't change buildings. He didn't change his pricing. He didn't cut off those he'd see. There's a line outside his door. He didn't change his level of care. And this man who's getting on in years, who dedicated himself to being a doctor, hasn't changed anything. He continues to treat each person with dignity, 
Not just to heal them, but to demonstrate respect. They don't just get five minutes where in other places they can barely get five minutes. He gives them 30 minutes or more to answer their questions, to try to understand with his own broken, their, through their broken English and his own inability what their needs are and how to minister to them. I look at that and I say, that's great. That's greatness. Or how about a story like this one? And this one's not one to tell. This one's to watch on the screen. How about a story of this, of practicing resurrection and seeking greatness in the way of Jesus? Keep your eyes on the screen. My name is Al Hergott. Been in Orange County. I had owned my own business for 28 years. I uh, was a food broker and worked with all the major uh, supermarkets. I was self-funded and I had four pieces of property that I had with family members. We had a falling out. I got into uh, a couple of lawsuits and had major attorney bills that I couldn't pay. Uh, depleted all my savings. I had worked from the age of 14. Um, and then at the age of 51, I woke up one day and had a negative balance, got a call from the bank. Uh, had lost my job, had no income, had no friends that had their own small businesses that could have me on as a consultant or working. Had lived 22 years at the, at the current residence within a month. Uh, rent increase, so within three days I put everything into storage. Well, I came to Grace Lutheran Church, uh, it'll be three years in July. Um, I was living in the Newport Beach bus terminal uh, on the ground on a piece of cardboard and I looked up in the sky and I said there's got to be a better way um, and I'm listening so God if you're speaking to me particularly uh, this is a good time within hours somebody had said oh I just got back from Sunday night I had taken so-and-so bus and we had a hot meal and oh what a great thing it was so I was saying, oh, in the back of my mind, wouldn't that be nice to be able to find a place that does this for the people that uh, they can't do it for themselves. When I was able to come here, I remember the first time being very shy and just sitting in the corner, um, knowing my background. Uh, when I was able to come here and meet the people that were actually doing the serving uh, in the preparation of the meals. These were the elders in the church. These were the board members. These were the people that uh, had gone through a lot of changes in the congregation. When I had gotten there early, I had seen people that were going to morning service. It was something that was liberating for me that they actually did it on the campus where people worshiped. There was this excitement in the air that I just felt that to be a part of. So for me, I thought there was only one thing to do, and that was to get involved, to make a difference, um, to lead by example. Um, was it easy? No. Uh, the prejudice against somebody that lets themselves go, uh, the stigma of letting everything fall by the wayside uh, for somebody that was college educated in a Christian fraternity. For a long time, I thought I was that one sheep that ran away and that, you know what, the shepherd couldn't count that high and that, you know what, he had 99 out of 100. But it, it tells us is that, you know what, God, he counts all his sheep. We have to be able to give him an opportunity to work through us. I just saw an opportunity here at Grace to be active in, in, in that way. And I think that that's really where I started to get saved.
I don't believe it's what you do for yourself. It's what you do for the other people. God always said, your only way you're going to inherit the kingdom is to be childlike. To be free of those, the, those banners. To not take up a sword, but to extend a hand. I think that everybody has their own opportunity to serve. And you know what? The only way you can give it all of it is with an open hand and a loving hand. That's the thing. The Lord is patient and he's gentle with the hand. And I'm just thankful that he gave me the ability to, you know what, not only start over, but let everybody know that the message is true and the way is right. And you'll be filled with things that you've never had before. You want to talk about practicing resurrection. Talk about death and being brought back to life. I don't know if you caught it in the video, but Al talking about how in that moment of rebirth, of saying how great it would be just to go to a place where there was a hot meal. Something that simple, something that small was great. And if you continued to listen out of just something that simple, greatness as Jesus defined it, Al has been experiencing and has been doing in his own service great things. One of the things that's not in the video, and he was here last service, but not in this one, and I didn't ask his permission before, but he said it was okay now, so I'm not worried about my life. He's big. <laughs> that, that really compelled me, and part of why I wanted to share Al's story with you, it's one of many stories in our, wide, in our wider community, is you heard Al talk about in the midst of when things fell, the ground, the floor fell out from under him, that storage unit of all of his stuff. Well, recently... You know, it's, it doesn't all just happen overnight. It doesn't all change overnight. He's had a, was in a, basically a situation where they were going to throw his stuff out, or he, you know, or they were going to, you know, storage wars, lock it up and then sell it to someone else. And Al didn't get angry. He didn't go over there and torch everything so no one else could have it. He didn't go and start trying to sell it, which would have helped him in the situation that he's in. Al, and this is basically just started giving it away. He just started asking around this community around if. if, if praying, Lord, who has a need in anything? He's just been giving it away, giving it to people who are in need, people who are in situations where this would make a difference in their lives. His way of saying, Lord, I'm not holding on to this, I'm giving it. To me, I can't get that picture out of my head. He's one person, but it's a powerful story. That storage unit represented his life as it was, all the stuff, all the points, all the things that he amassed. And you heard him, the freedom of just basically saying, I'm done with points. I'm done with holding on to this stuff. I'm experiencing greatness and I'm giving greatness and giving it away. Beloved, practicing resurrection. And that's what we're called to do. That's discipleship. Practicing resurrection is pursuing the greatness of our character in Christ. Because when it's all said and done, character is the only thing we can build that we're able to keep, that we're able to take with us from this life into the next all our natural born lives, we've been raised to pursue greatness by pursuing power and control. But in baptism, we died to all these things. Everything that binds us and keeps us apart from God and from each other, everything that makes us seek power and glory, every system of point keeping and one upping, Jesus declared on the cross, it's finished. In our spirit born lives, we've been raised to seek greatness, not by others being devoted to us, but by being devoted to the well-being of others. Our joy in this life, as it will be in heaven, is in proportion not to how many stars we have in our crown, 
but according to our character. How we have abided and cooperated with Jesus in harvesting the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, kindness, patience, and self-control, harvesting the fruit of the Spirit not only in ourselves, but more importantly in the lives of others. So maybe the more important question this morning is not where can we see this kind of greatness, the greatness that Jesus speaks of among us, but rather maybe the more important question is how can we follow Jesus in revealing this kind of greatness, his greatness among us? It's always there. It's like a bad penny, the Kairos card. I ask you if you've been trying to pretend it doesn't exist anymore or maybe if you use it every week to take it out yet again and look at it. Ended this testimony from Al with the questions that are on this card. Pick up a pen, pick up a pencil, and write something down. Write down specifically one way you can follow Jesus this week in serving others. One way. One thing you already have. One thing you already have that Jesus is calling you to use, to share. Maybe to give away in order to do something great. Write it down. Take some time during the offering. Ask Jesus to lead the way during Holy Communion. Some of you, I notice, are already reaching for your card. That's great. You've got an idea, something God's put upon your heart that's burning clearly. Awesome. Others of you are more like me. You're out loud thinkers. You need to process, to talk this out with someone. Do it. Do it on the patio after this service. By all means, talk about everything else that you talk about, but talk about this. Talk about it on the way home, driving in the car. Talk about it over lunch. Write it down, and if you don't write it down on this card, let God write it down in your heart. Take it with you. Beloved, let's do something great for Jesus. One person, one life at a time. Let's together practice resurrection by helping another person to see how great they are, how alive they are in the eyes of Jesus. Amen. Amen.